Get your gear ready. This is a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Hello, and welcome once again to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation, a podcast dedicated to guiding you along your innovation expedition. Sherpa hosts Ben and Jay are here again. Jay, what's happening? Hey, Ben. Well, well, what's happening is we are closing the podcast year 2022 strong. Uh, this episode, as listeners are hearing it, this is going to be November. Uh, our last episode uh, in October was with Perry Claibon, uh, former CEO of Patagonia, CEO of Timbuktu. To Stanford D School professor, that was a tremendous conversation. Yeah, and as you introduce our guest here in a moment, everyone will know we've got a Hall of Famer that we're we're talking to. Uh-huh. But do you want to mention the listeners? This is our last episode of 2022, and we're going to take a short pause uh, on the podcast. Part of that is uh, a little bit of paternity time for Ben, who uh, <laughs> yeah. is going to be having a child right around the time Another this comes up. Boy. If not earlier. And uh, so we will be back with you uh, uh, sometime in Q1 2023, but uh, you're going to like this last episode a lot. Yeah, we're going to end on a high note. Um, (laughs) And today's guest is Bob Mesta, who joins us for a record-breaking fourth episode, our, our first guest to hit four episodes. And Bob really needs no introduction, but if you're not familiar, here are the basics. Uh, Bob is a founding father of the Jobs to be Done Theory and its practice. He's the founder and CEO of the Rewired Group. He's a professor, author, husband of Julie, and father of four. He's our favorite living innovator in the galaxy, and (laughs) we are proud to call him a friend. And we're speaking to him about a month after the release of his latest book entitled Learning to Build. The five bedrock skills of innovators and entrepreneurs. So, Sensei Bob, welcome back for the fourth time to a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jay. Like I'm, uh, I feel I feel like I'm uh, a co-co-host at some point in time, being on so often. But I, I do appreciate I do appreciate you having me back on, and uh, uh, hopefully we're not going to well we're going to talk about new subjects this time as opposed yep. to just keep diving into jobs to be done. Yep. Yeah. Well, you you can be an honorary co-host anytime that you want, Bob. So thank you. Thank you. Awesome. <clears throat> a quick note for our listeners: if you haven't yet provided a rating and a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, would you hit that pause button and head over and type in a few sentences? We'd appreciate the feedback, and we'd love to know if we are nailing your job to be done. Head over yeah. to Twitter and follow us at SherpaPod. Uh, we're also a member of the Health Podcast Network, and we encourage you to check out the other healthcare-related podcasts um, on the Healthcare Podcast Network, which you can find on Twitter at HealthPodNet. Okay, Bob, uh, we've we've heard the standard opening response from you before, <laughs> probably a few yes. times. So we'll we'll skip that initial question. That's usually our standard opener, and dig into uh, to this question, which is. What progress were you trying to make in writing 
learning to build. And if you could talk to us about functional, social, and emotional dimensions to that. Yeah. So it starts with uh, uh, one of the first dominoes that I would say that fell in 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 the course of writing this book was my youngest daughter graduated from college. And so we are officially empty nesters and she has moved to California and now it's time to clean out the house. And so I go to the attic and in the attic is I've started uh, almost every one of my businesses in, in what I call the tree house. And if you go to the tree house, there's uh, like all my volume, it turns out all my volumes of notebooks are there. So I have over, over almost 40 years of notebooks. I have 847 of them. And as I started to look at them, I'm like, okay, we're just going to go get the dumpster. We're just going to throw them in the dumpster. My wife said, no, no, you can't do that. I'm like, she goes, take some time and just look through them. And so as I started to look through them, I realized like how much I had learned and how much I had worked with, uh, you know, some great people. And, you know, uh, the the notion of being an 18 year old, illiterate, uh, dyslexic kid and being told to be a baggage handler. And now looking back on my life and saying, all right, I've worked in 3,500 products. I've worked in all these different industries. I've done all these different, like, okay, how did that happen? And so part of this is to pay homage to my, my, what I would, there's lots of mentors, but I, but I would say the four core mentors who were there at the foundation for me and really kind of helped me become the innovator that I am. And so I think of me as more of a vessel um, and of their knowledge. And so part of this was taking the time to reflect and say, what did they teach me? It's also taking the time to reflect the people that I worked with, some of the amazing people I've worked with and kind of said like, all right, what, what do they do and what skills do they have? And, and out of that, I kind of came into a big mural board that is just massive that kind of has all these different things and ultimately kind of bringing it down into these five, what I would call bedrock skills that in a lot of cases people haven't talked about or they talk about in isolation, but I, I think they're a nested set of things that that if you have these skills you you're you're you you end up becoming a, a super innovator because of the skills so that's, that's kind awesome of where it, that's where that's how it got there and and for me the progress is really about um paying it forward um being able to you know uh like again what's interesting is you reflect on your mentors I, like i never asked them to be my mentor i never thought of them as i was a mentee and a mentor i only really kind of talked about this you know or see it in hindsight like you know, Dr. Deming did a lot, you know, taught me a lot of things. And I'm pretty sure Dr. Deming would never know my name, might know my name, but it's like not, but Dr. Taguchi and Clay, they, they, we knew each other fairly well. But like, I think the notion is, is we all have mentors in our lives and we need to basically uh, acknowledge of what kind of how they've helped us and shaped us and and directed us. And I think that's kind of really the the real kind of pay, pay it forward kind of mentality. I think the other thing is that I've changed, you know, one of my key metrics of success is that I've uh, adopted Clay's, which is the number of people that I can help in the world before I pass. And so part of this is to really take the time to kind of uh, um, make sure that I'm I'm trying to get as much out of my head and, and be able to put it into a form that other people can consume it. Because as you know, and having been in my office I, I'm a little disorganized and I have a lot of thoughts, but having having a team like uh, Scribe Media help me kind of organize my thoughts and bring it into a book was kind of uh, another real big progress for me of kind of feeling like, okay, I got it out. I don't have to think about it that much anymore. I can just keep doing it. Well, Bob, I think we touched on each one of the dimensions there, functional, social, emotional. And um, speaking for PhD 
students 50 years from now do not throw away all of those notebooks because they're going to want to read through all that material and and, and write their thesis or something on it. So what's so so interesting about what's so interesting about the notebooks though, is like, it's one of those things where like I have a fairly uh, eidetic memory. So like what happens is I have to have three pieces of information, uh, a person, a place and, and a, and a, and a time. And if I have those things, I can actually bring myself back into those moments. And so I could literally open the book and all of a sudden I'm back in Germany or I'm in, in Japan or I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, this is where we're the, and I can literally imagine the whole room. So it was really, in some cases it was exhausting, but in other places it was just like, almost like, you know, a, a blast through the past. It was just so much fun to kind of go through all the notebooks and see them. And like, it was like some of the, like, you know, some of the things I worked on were just so funny. And it's like, like, oh my God, I can't even, I, you know, just, it was so much fun. So I, 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 I think it's uh, nobody will be able to make sense of it, but at the same time, the fact is that if if I'm there, I can actually explain it to people. So we're going to figure out kind of that that part of it at some point. And and you know, obviously, we encourage the listeners to read the book. And I think one one of the things they'll enjoy is learning about young Bob because uh, yes. young Bob had, and we're not going to, you know, reveal it here. You know, oh, you, these you, internships you and things that that he did. But this is not what most young people do straight out of college. These are not normal internships, you know, with normal leaders and managers. So these mentors that Bob talks about, you're going to get quite a, a story that is uh, is very unique. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the, the interesting part is my mom and I would talk about this and, and you know, I would always say that I'm very lucky. And, and my mom would always remind me that, you know, luck might be part of it, but at some point you took the initiative to do these things. You know, mm-hmm. uh, how many other people did Dr. Deming ask to be an intern, but never followed up? Or how many people did, you know, there's, my belief is that there's, there's a lot more opportunity in front of us than we see. And that, that part of this is the ability to kind of, you know, take the risk and move forward. And so I yeah. think that's, that's part of it. I think the other part is my dyslexia of learning like i have to learn through conversation and i have to learn through drawing and so my ability to ask questions and all that kind of helped all of my you know i'll say help me help my mentors because at some point like part of the role of a mentee is to actually help the mentor as well right and so you know clay and i had very very deep conversations because i would ask I, i could tell him like i don't understand where most people would be like they'd never tell clay they couldn't understand it right so it's it very, it's very uh, interesting kind of, I think part of it is the context that I, I was in. So. Yeah. Well, Bob, before we talk about some of the content of the book, let's, yeah. um, let's jump to the end and talk about the conclusion. And uh-huh. um, what, what you've done in the conclusion is you've identified four reasons that someone would hire the book yeah. and you, you insert a little vignette or persona um, for each yes. of the, Yes, um, the the four reasons, and, and uh, one well, of them well, happens to be named Jay. Yes, I I don't know I, if that I was, noticed uh, that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, but I I I it, it it it's I was thinking of you, Jay. Yes, I was as <laughs> as one of that, that, that in that situation. And so part of this is to realize, like, what what's to me what's interesting is is as we were wrapping up the book, it's trying to figure out what 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 are people supposed to go do. And so that's why in some cases I've put it, I think at the other book, I put it in the beginning. And I think because they didn't understand the concepts, they didn't know where I was going. But now that they've gone through all the concepts, like, what do you want to do next? It really is about what path of progress do you want to choose now? And so that's really the purpose of those four different kind of vignettes is like, look, are you just, 
you're really just trying to find one or two things. Like there's this lifelong learner who wants to, you know, kind of figure out like uh, I, they read books to basically find one, one nugget and basically figure out kind of like, okay, how do I go apply that nugget? And it becomes like that they're always reading to or learning new things to kind of add tools to the toolbox. Right. There's another one where it's like about, you know, you know, I'm, my, I, my, I, I'm, I'm not making as much progress as I want, or we're stalling out as a team, or I'm not, I'm not, you know, I've done a startup, but it's just, it's not going as fast as I want. Like, what can I do? And it's like, all right, how do we actually figure out the 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 skill that's missing and have you hone and refine it? And so I think all of those are kind of really wrapped around this notion of what progress do you want to make? And again, when I write books, it's all about it takes the job uh, job to be done kind of framework in mind of like what 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 context are people in when they're trying to pick up the book, and then what are the outcomes they really are trying to seek? And so ultimately, I made sure that all four of you know those jobs were hit in all of the content that we put together, and so that becomes the guardrails for how we generate the content. Yeah. And as we know about jobs, you're not always in one, in any given context. So I, I find myself in lifelong learner for a lot of it, but then yeah. there's also the aspect of we're trying to teach organization. We're trying to teach innovation across the organization. Yeah. We're trying to uh, build up our skills as a team. So there's, yeah. there's kind of aspects of all three of those jobs that I might seek to employ at, at any given time That's in right. reading the book. That's right. It's again, it's not just who it's who, when, where, and why yep. that that's how demand yeah. is framed. And if yeah. we, if we think about it that way, it's like, I, I might be the same person, but I'm in a different when, where, and why that's a different job. So, so this is why I think it's important for us to realize like being able to have and have situational awareness and understand the context you're in and what you're trying to do this is why like there's several books that I, I listen to every year. Right. And I, and I, it's what's so funny is I get something different from it. Every single, every single time I listen to it, it's like, I, I just, I have a different slant on it because I'm in a different place in time when I'm listening to it. And so to me, like one of them is the end of average. Like I just like, mm-hmm. I almost have the book memorized, but at the same time, it's like, I just happen to be in a different context and think about things in a different way. And then it helps me articulate kind of my struggles in a better way. So it's one of, that's one of those books I listen to over and over again. Yeah. And, and one thing that readers will get out of this book is at the end of every chapter, you've got some of your favorite and most useful books in there. So you can, yeah, yeah. You well, can learn from those. You, you ha- Jay, you had a, you had actually had a very big impact on this book, like more than you, you, you could imagine. Like one of the things is, so one of the skills is this empathetic perspective, being able to see things from other people's point of view and you're very good at it. But at the same time for you to go and say like, I'm going to go learn improv because improv allows me to figure out how to detach better and be able to say yes. And as opposed to, but, and you start to realize these skills and now you pull it back into how you innovate. And all of a sudden, like, wow, you're just a, a totally, you're at a totally different level. And so to me, you're one of the examples I, I think of is like, it's really hard to learn empathetic perspective. And as a, as a, as an engineer or on the technical side, you usually don't think about kind of those things or you think about them very rationally. And ultimately the best place to learn empathetic perspective is in the theater or some kind of stage. And so I think that like, you know, you, 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 you have come up many times in my notes and conversations with the scribe people around this uh, uh, becoming an innovator or learning these skills. And then, being the person who wants to double down on it. 
Yeah, well, it's exciting to hear that. I'm glad glad I was able to help in, in some ways. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, let's get into some of the content of the book. And there are yeah. five skills. Uh, we're not going to, we don't have a three hour podcast, and we're not going to uh, tackle all the skills. And we're going to go to the skills that are a little bit less about jobs to be done because that, you know, everyone knows you for that. This yeah. book is Bob the builder and the innovator. So we're going to take a couple of them. The third skill is, is you call it causal structures. And I want to tee this up by telling you, you may know a little bit about this, but we just wrapped up a really great body of interviews in primary Mm -hmm. care where we interviewed people about uh, why they hire or fire primary care, you know, to make progress. So we've, We've done that discovery. We've looked at that aspect. We've looked at consumers. And that's that's what we've done so far. Mm -hmm. But as you know, consumers are just, they're a very important part of the picture. They're not the whole picture. So that's right. Talk to us about what causal structures are, you know, as it relates to systems thinking. And maybe we could explain that in the realm of, of primary care and we could kind of build yeah. the picture that way. Yeah. 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 So, so w- most really good innovators and entrepreneurs have a, a foundation in cause and effect. And they, they, they're, they're genuinely curious about how things work. And when you're, when you're, when you have that, you actually have, you know, words become a very hard way in which to articulate cause and effect. And so you start to end up drawing diagrams, you end up drawing pictures of some sort and, I went back and forth and it was, you know, it's systems thinking. And one of the reasons why I didn't call it systems thinking mm-hmm. was the fact of, of like, everybody would say, oh, I know what a system is. And, mm-hmm. and I found that I learned systems in a very different way than most people. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want them to get, almost skip the chapter. Cause like, I already know what that is. Right. Yeah. And so the, the reason why I call it causal structure is like, I don't think there's one right answer about how to think about the cause and effect, but almost everybody has their own version of systems thinking and their own set of cause and effect, uh, um, mental, uh, 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 you know, kind of structures, right. Their mental maps, if they have of how, how, the, how things work. And so to me, this is actually understanding how to diagram or how to actually understand, you know, what are the things that have to happen for people to actually, uh, let's say make the progress they want to with their primary care physician. And so, this is the this is where I always say the rubber hits the road, right? At some point, we might know what the customer wants, but at some point, we have to design a system or or a set of uh, interactions with the customer so they can actually achieve the progress they want. And so, part of this is then how do we actually think about those things, and what are the th- what are the inputs, the resources, the actions to get to the outputs to then help the customer get to the outcomes? And it's a way in which to kind of piece together all these different conversations and actually start to realize the the sequence of things that have to happen in order to make progress. And so it's, it's the technical side of what I call the supply side of the world of understanding what we need to build in order to actually help them make progress. That's where the book comes into play for me. When I think about what I've learned from you, a lot about the demand side piece of this, and we've talked about demand side sales, but I think when you started talking about empathetic perspective, from multiple perspectives and I'm, I'm yes. reading this and I'm interviewing consumers Then I'm thinking about, yeah, but I don't have 
the the provider's perspective. I haven't talked right. to them. I I got to understand where they fit into things. So exactly. it opened my eyes that, that there's so much more for us to think about. Talk a little bit about what are control factors and what are noise yeah. factors? How do we think about that? Uh, so this is this is a really really important concept that Dr. Taguchi came up with is and he's he his his whole notion is that as a as an engineer or somebody who's building something on the supply side of the world there are things that we have responsibility to set and to specify and that we are actually have responsibility to do that and that is what we would call a control factor mm-hmm. and control factors they don't necessarily affect cost but they basically they they do affect the system and the other part is then there's noise factors and noise factors are things that affect the system but we have no control over yeah right in the, in the book, I talk about this notion of a, of a rear view mirror that, that basically the glass keeps falling out and it falls out when there's too much humidity in the air or basically the, the temperature is really high and the, the case expands and the glass falls out. And so if you talk about the root cause, well, the root cause is the temperature, but how do I design a, a case that will actually hold the glass no matter what the temperature varies? And so it's Taguchi's attempt to basically start to realize where are their boundaries of control? Because a lot of times we would do quote root cause analysis and find out that, oh, you know, it's the temperature outside. So we need to air condition the plant, (laughs) right? And it's like, no, that's not the way to go about it. And so part of this was learning ways in which to think about and building the defining um, uh, kind of boundaries of influence and realizing like the transmission is a noise factor to the engine. And the engine is a, is a noise factor to the transmission. And ultimately, I want to be able to... So the way we used to develop is we develop the engine, and then we develop the transmission. And then, and then at some point, there'd be some small change in the engine, and then we'd have to actually then make changes to the transmission. So it took us almost 72 months to develop a car. But when we actually start to th- take this mentality of how do we actually break things into subsystems and understand how to make the subsystems robust to each other, like... I know as a transmission designer, I don't. I know might know the range of torque. I might know the range of weight that I'm going to have. I might know the underlying speeds that I have to have. But ultimately, I have to fit it within these ranges. I don't have to have the engine finished before I can actually start development. And so it allows you to actually start to do what we would call parallel, you know, engineering, or basically, you know, uh, being able to develop things and then do a set of uh, uh, of prototypes to pull things together. And so part of this is it allows us to work in parallel as opposed to work in serial. Going back to thinking about primary care as a causal structure, if I understand yeah. the definitions correctly, a noise factor, for example, and we heard this in the interviews, was the pandemic. You know, yep. COVID-19 hits, it's an external factor. Yep. We can't control that as our causal structure, but we can make our we can do things to make ourselves more resilient to what those yes. noise factors have. Is, is that thinking That's about part it? of it? So, so the other, the, and Taguchi would always say the first thing we want to do is make ourselves robust to those kinds of things we can't control. And then the other part then is how do we actually then create feedback systems? Like, Oh, if this is going to happen, then we should do that. If that is going to happen, then we should do something else. Those are called compensating systems. And so in a lot of cases, sometimes we have to compensate for noise factors, but that's not how we have to design the entire system. Yeah. Right. And so in primary care, the fact is, is like it's, at some point in time, it's like there's a normal operating window for for like of, you know, the wait time, how long it takes. But sometimes it takes a little longer to work with one patient, a little less with another. 
right? And I think the aspect here is that that by, I think one of the things you guys did early on was how do we actually understand in, in urgent care, like how do we understand mm-hmm. their situation better so we then can actually compensate and give people who need a little bit more time because they don't know versus the people who know we can actually give them less time. Now we can actually design the system to actually be way more robust to basically what the situations that we find uh, patients in. Yeah, yeah. You right. hit on it and exactly. so and, and, and so part of this is learning how to actually design not only with the customer in mind, but it's it's uh, in, in the in the causal structure chapter, I talk about this notion of of you know right to left thinking. Most of the time we think about everything coming, you know, we have inputs, inputs go into a system, and that system then has outputs and so on. But ultimately, I want to think about the outcome. And then if it's these outcomes, what is the what is the context that the customer's in that wants those outcomes? What are the outputs that I have to provide them so they can get to that progress? And then ultimately, what are the resources I can put together to help me get to that output? And so it's it's thinking in that, it's thinking backwards. So people always say like, why are you thinking backwards? And I just said, well, I'm not thinking backwards. I'm just, my reference point is the customer. And how do I go from the customer back to the product, as opposed to most people think about the product and how it gets to the customer? Yeah. And I think about this in terms of, okay, I'm I'm reading this book. I'm looking at the skills that I need to develop and where I need to develop more. I think about myself. I am, I am not a person I'll admit that cares very much about how things work, which is nearly the opposite of you. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I've heard you talk about, I'm I'm, I'm almost on the other end of too much. You, yeah. You, yeah. When you were a kid, you were taking speakers and things apart and I was just listening to music, but, uh, but it kind of points out to you, you know, uh, if I'm, if I'm going to, uh, learn these things, I, I either need to learn them or there needs to be someone on the team that is really, really good at understanding exactly. how things work and then you bring them into it. That's exactly right. And so part of this is, is that like, I, I don't believe that like, first of all, I don't believe you're born an innovator. I think we learn how to innovate and that like I learned as a superpower because I couldn't read and write and I couldn't learn the regular way. I like, I had an affinity to learning this way, but I think at the same time, like I'm not, I'm not good at all five of these though, though I would say I'm not bad at, at all five. There's some that are, I think I'm better than others at, but at the same time, it's to your point, Jay, of how do we put a team together? This is the diversity part of a team where I need, like, I, I need to know what skills I'm not good at and how do I make sure that I have access to that skill on the team? Because what, what I will say is when, when I, when you, when I've worked with a team that has all five of these skills, it's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and I don't, there's very few, like I can probably count on my, you know, fingers and toes, like people who have all five of these skills, but there aren't many. And, and, and again, I don't, and again, I don't think I have all five of the skills, but I know that I learned them and I learned how important they were and helping, you know, like, like finding people who are like, I can identify and manage trade-offs, but I know people who are so much better at building systems around that. That that's like, yeah, I, I like I can help frame it, but I'm really not good at building the way to, uh, to, to, to make that into a, like a everyday system. So it's, it's well, teamwork. And that's really why we need teams. And so there's really more about knowing who you are, knowing what you're good at, where you have a natural affinity. And then at the same time, uh, knowing how to find, you know, almost like, uh, uh, like Greg and I, polar opposites that, that yep. we can complement each other. Well, continuing the theme of skills that Jay 
Jay is not as strong at. <laughs> we'll talk about the fourth skill of of prototyping to learn. And yeah. you know, I'll put uh, some context for this. Is you know, I've told you before that this is one of the the hardest chapters for me. It's uh, yeah. uh, you know, Bob the engineer me is too. coming out. Uh, a lot of stuff on Tegiji. I've read it a couple of times, and now I've gotten to the point where yeah, I get it, and, and I definitely get it for the the physical product and manufacturing examples you've got, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about how we apply that to our context, but maybe yeah. talk a little bit about the, the basics so, of prototype to learn versus like a B testing, for example. Yeah. 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 So this is where like, again, I was taught very like at 18, 19 years old that, that a B testing is the, the worst, most inefficient, ineffective way in which to test. And this is like in the eighties. Right. And, and, like, and now I look at the world and everybody's doing A-B testing. So this is one where I want to double down to say like, guys, there's a better way. Please take the time because when you understand it, you don't realize the house of cards you're building. But the biggest difference is, is that um, what I would say is most testing is built on hypotheses. And, and I was digging through my notebooks and I think I showed you guys the notebook, but it was one of these notebooks from, I think, 1990. And it would basically say the difference between how the West tests and how Japan tests is... The West tests to prove its hypotheses. They form a hypothesis and they build a set of tests or experiments to then prove that their hypothesis is right. And you go, and Dr. Gucci would say, in Japan, we test because we don't know. And, yeah. and so the whole aspect of like, what do you mean we don't know? It's like, well, we really don't have the data to know what's going to happen. And so we can try to think about it, but we're better off just kind of testing it. And from testing it and playing with the parameters, we can then see how it comes out and we can learn and actually cause the product to fail before it's actually in the field. And so one of the things we found very early is that the Japanese would do anywhere from 10 to a hundred more prototypes than we would at Ford. And, and so you started to realize like, how did they do that? And why did they do that? And part of it was, is they had to admit they didn't know all the interactions and how everything worked. And so ultimately their running of tests was to use a a fractional factorial system of being able to do instead of every possible combination, a very special subset that then helps you see the space with only 10, 12, 20 prototypes instead of having to do four or 500 or four or 5,000. And so in simulation and software, we've been doing that for a long time, but, but, but for the most part, it's like, how do we actually see the space that we're trying to actually build in? And so this is where I've, I learned to use designed experiments to prototype to learn because all of a sudden there would be one of these that wouldn't work. I'm like, well, why didn't that one work? Or boy, this one worked a lot better than the other one. Well, what caused that? And so it's, it's using, it's the empirical side of, of, of causal structures, meaning like I, I, I so I, I think uh, um, there was an engineer at Ford who would, or a general motors that I worked with at one time. And he would always say like, I don't really know what's best for the engine, but I'm going to let the engine tell me what makes it a better engine. Hmm. And everybody would laugh, but it's like, like, I'm going to change the timing. I'm going to change the spark. I'm going to change. I can change all these things, but what really happens? What happens to gas mileage? What happens to horsepower? And so he goes like, I can guess at what I think all those things are going to do. But like, if I play with this the right way, I can actually tell you like, when this changes, this is what happens. And when that changes, this is what happened, but not one factor of time in the sense of how everything is changing at once. And so it becomes a very, very efficient way. So one of the ways that I, Again, I'm, I'm, you know, 19, 20 years old, and and 
most people are changing one parameter at a time. I have, I have a hypothesis. Let's, let's see if that works or not. And I literally go like, all right, I'm going to go in and change, you know, nine different factors simultaneously, but I'm only going to run 18 experiments. And out of it, I'm like, okay, we need to change this, 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 and that. And they're like, how do you know that? I'm like, well, the data says it. I have no, and, and they would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm like, I appreciate it makes no sense, but the reality is like, I think it's going to work. And when it worked, they're like, oh, you know what? Maybe this theory's wrong. And so Taguchi would always say that most new theories only come from anomalies. And at some point in time, that's why when we're innovating, theories actually are, are hindered. They help us get in the ballpark, but they actually don't help us hone and refine. And so to me, that's why I love to use. So I think of prototyping to learn is more about how do we empirically listen to what the, the system is doing so we can learn how to make it better as opposed to hypothesize what we think it should make it better. And, you know, having read it a couple of times, I have definitely got my head around, you know, if you're in manufacturing, making physical products, maybe even digital products, yeah. we in healthcare, or let's say you're Marriott or you're, you're yeah. someone providing physical service, service experiences, yes. how do you yes. adapt or, or at least take the principles of this yeah. rather than the traditional A-B testing or hypothesis I, testing. I think, I, think, I think we did that when we built that survey, that intake survey for basically the, the um, urgent care, right? Mm -hmm. Like what sequence of questions should we ask? Should we ask this first or does we have ask for it? Like what are the words that we use, right? Yeah. How, you know, is it open-ended or do we give different, do we give multiple choice answers? Like those are all parameters that we can change to help us understand what's going to be the best intake form we can get. What happens is we just design, usually we design it once and it's like, oh, it works. Okay, we'll go. But we don't actually think about the noise factors of different people and different languages and different yeah. ways in which to actually check. And, and all of a sudden we have to make it robust to the audience that's going to see it. And so part of this is to realize, like, if I'm going to build the survey or I'm going to, I'm going to build the system, like what are the right steps and do these steps make sense across the variation we're going to see. And so ultimately, like, so for example, one of the things I always do is, is as we start to build a plan, what I'll do is I'll say, all right, what if I only have half the time? If, I, if, we, if we have like six weeks to do this and I said, now we only got three weeks, what would you do? It helps us understand what you'd change in prototype. If I said, all right, well, I'm going to give you twice as much time. What would you do differently? I'm going to give you double the money. Right. I'm, I'm actually playing with parameters to help yeah. them understand, like, how does this thing really work? And as we think through it and you start to realize, like, no matter what we do, we still have to do these five things. So if yeah. I give you more time or less time, these five things are essential no matter what we do. Then let's focus on these five yeah. things. So, so this, we, is, this, gets, this gets to my notion of contrast creates meaning. Yeah. And most people think about once they, they like the, the notion of the right answer, I think, is very harmful. Because we think yeah. there is a right answer and we need to find it. And what I always think of is, no, there's always a better answer. And I need to be able to understand, like, when, when have I spent enough time and when is it good enough? It's, nothing's ever perfect. So I could see in this area of primary care, if we were looking at some aspect of the experience, we might approach it. It sounds like we could do some of it as tabletop exercises or, mm -hmm. or simulations. Or if they are real experiments in the field, maybe we, we, we take uh, eight of our practices and potentially yeah. eight 
you know, we simultaneously in the same week, we make little adjustments to different factors and then we exactly. come back and see what we've learned. Exactly. So this might be where, where at one of the urgent cares you do this way, or one of the primary cares you do it this way, another one you do another way. And you literally wait and have the data kind of come back to say like, did this actually help increase, you know, basically satisfaction or did, did people come back? I think the thing is, is most of the time when we're doing AB testing, we're testing so small of differences that, that we don't actually understand where the limits are, where something will fail. Yeah. yeah. Right. So like I, I, I'm building a prototype. So one of the next books I'm working on is what causes people to say today's the day I'm going to leave this company and go to another company. And ultimately it's thinking about the causation of like, you know, the, the premise is people hire companies more than companies hire employees. Mm. Right. And yeah. In the prototype, the first prototype was like, all right, let's figure out a process so we can help people. So we went and helped 10 people and it took us nine weeks and it was very intensive. And it, you know, There's no way it was scalable, but we helped 10 people. And then out of that, we learned enough to go create a prototype that was a virtual or an asynchronous one. And then we were able to do that in six weeks. And then the next round, I did a cohort. I'm like, I want to break it. I want it where only 50% of the people will complete. And, and it turns out like we ended up doing it in three weeks and we got 50% to go. And then what we did is we found out where the pinch points were. We found out where people couldn't actually think about it or they needed more reflective time. And so we built new exercises there. And so I actually went to break it so I could learn how to make it better. And so again, in healthcare, it's different because you're, you're, you're flying the plane. It's hard to work on the plane when you're flying it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But, but at the same time, you can use the, the, the constructs of contrast to create meaning to say like, well, what are four different ways we could do it and do it almost as mental exercises. It's still very, very useful. Got it. That helps a lot. Parallel prototyping almost. Yeah. So, so, so with my kids, when they went to school, one of the things we did, I used an orthogonal array there by saying, all right, um, school is you know close or is it far away? Is it a big school or is it a small school? Is it a private school? Is it a public school? Is it a science school or a liberal arts school? Um, it doesn't have Greek systems. And, and then we'd go find schools that met these criteria, eight different schools. I knew none of them were schools they wanted, but then they'd tell me about what they liked or they didn't like mm-hmm. at each one of the schools. And out of it, they were able to figure out what they wanted. And they all wanted something different. One wanted small urban, one wanted, you know, uh, rural, get me out of, get me out of here. Right? Like one wanted to, like, I wanted to disappear. So I wanted a lot of students and I wanted to almost like find my way. Like, and you start to realize it's that contrast that helped them understand what they wanted. And I, I was not trying to find the best school that I thought they should go to. I wanted them to find the best school they wanted to go to. Yeah. You were trying to And learn. all four got Good out of four years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bob, that was an awesome preview of, of a couple of the skills in the book and, and we'll let uh, readers learn the rest. Yeah. One, one thing that you um, talk about in the book are the mentors that meant so much yeah. to you. Um, and obviously you can't list every single mentor you've ever worked with. You, you kind of picked yeah. your Mount Rushmore. Um, yeah. But if if there were one or two other mentors that you didn't mention in your book that you wanted to take a minute to maybe recognize their impact on you and, and uh, potentially how they might've influenced this book. So I have, I have um, like, I I probably have three, uh, there's, there's actually a lot, but I I would say like, like when you, when you said who's next on the list, it's like very hard to kind of come up with just two. So I, I have three, maybe four, but like, so one of them is a gentleman by the name of David T. Lord. And David was a draftsman at Ford and he learned Dr. Deming's methods 
very early on, and he is probably the single, in my mind, the single greatest uh, uh, student of Deming in terms of applying this to small business. And he wrote a book called uh, the visual, what's it called? The, the visual system of work. And he took like, so one of the things he did very early in my career, when I was uh, at for, he literally looked at my office and said, all right, what comes into my office? You know, what do you do with it? And then where does it go? And so whether it's email or, or letters or phone calls, it's like, okay, how do we actually understand the work that happens in this office? And he's applying all of Dr. Deming's principles at such a very micro level, like a very personal level that he's done this for thousands and thousands of companies. He's, he's in his seventies now. He, he, he's funny. I, I always say he looks like Doc Brown from uh, back to the future, big, like white hair, just, you know, out. And he's one of the guys. Scott. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and Jay is one of those guys who like, he, like, he helps take what I would call implicit processes and makes them explicit. And he's just so wonderfully good. He's, he's uh, uh, tenacious about it. Like, like, like just, 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 like at some point he's very annoying to me, but at the same time, I, I literally like, I know the other side is going to be so much better that, that that's why I always, and I've, I've hired him many times in the businesses I've built and, and uh, I still am good friends with him, but he is, he's, he's an amazing, amazing guy. He wrote, so he wrote a book called the visual system of work. And it's, it literally is about, you know, a hundred pages and it's just loaded with just awesome stuff. And then uh, the other one, I, I like, I, I actually had a lot and I had to narrow it down, but I think the other one is a guy by the name of John Beaumont Palmer. And John Palmer is in Montreal and he is, he went to MIT in the seventies, uh, late sixties, early seventies, but he was one of the very first people to do behavioral economics and understand the role and think about behavioral economics as a system. And he was very much into the modeling and he's the one who kind of got me really kind of cued into context and outcome and, and uh, the variables that shape the way people perceive or make decisions and, and being able to, he, he really kind of got me the foundation of, of what he does. And he, he ran a company called InnoMedia. He's run like several different companies all around modeling markets and, and defining opportunity and things like that. And I would say that the two of them have just been really, really, you know, again, there's, there's just numerous people, but those, those would be kind of the next two on the list. Great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those. I, I think our listeners will enjoy getting to, to learn more about these yeah. people that have influenced you as, as you've yeah. influenced so many yourself. Well, well let's do a closing question. Okay. Um, uh, so are we all we're already done? Is this it? Really? It goes. Oh it my goes, god, it's been 50 minutes. This, this is so ridiculous. Fast. It goes so holy fast. moly. I am sorry. I, Boy, I, oh, I, hope no. I, didn't, I didn't bore people, but wow, I felt no. like it's been 10 minutes. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. Um, so I want to know how many days do you have left? I think uh, I you know what I'm asking you. And you oh, can yeah, explain I know why. exactly what you're asking. And 1890 days, 1890. And yes. what's blinking most rapidly on your radar screen to get done? And, um, and you may need to explain to folks why yeah, so, it's 1890. So, so, so I have a, as, as, as morbid as it sounds, I have a death day. And what I've learned is that, that time is the most precious of all of our resources and that it's free and priceless at the same time. So it's a paradox. And we get a full bank account every morning. And at some point we have, you know, 88,000 seconds in a day. And it's like, you have to spend them because you can't save them. And somebody who takes your time is worse than a thief. Is that, that's what Taguchi would always say. And so, mm. 
to me, like being able to actually understand some urgency, it, it creates what I call a time wall, which literally forces me to make way better decisions about my life as a whole by not saying the day I'm going to retire, but the day I'm going to die. And so what do I want to make sure I get done before I get there? And so that's kind of one of the underlying premises of that death day. And it's it's pulled from my mom died when I was 25. She was 62. I'm 57. So I have about five years left. And so, and my mom would always say like, oh, I'll do that when I retire. And and literally she, you know, found out she had cancer and died soon after. So she never was able to do anything she wanted to do. And so I, I'm taking that view as saying like, like I might have a day after, I might have 10 years after, I might have 40 years after, but like, I want to actually live my life as if that's what I'm going to die and make sure I get everything in. So I have no regrets. And at the same time, any time after that, it's going to be bonus. So like, it's a win-win in both cases. It's kind of a morbid thought, but it creates very positive outcomes for me. And so as you, as you start to look at this, I think two, two really things that are pushing to me, one is family and, and um, now that my kids are out of the house, it's that aspect of five years. If I see my kids once a quarter, um, I'll see my kids literally 20 more times in my life. And that just that that's just gut-wrenching to me. And so part of it is making sure that we get time together and that I can come go see them or I like I'll go teach out in, in California so I can actually go ahead go to dinner with them. And so I try to see them as often as I can, or at least once a month or once every six weeks or so. But that that's one of those things where the time as it's flying by, I'm realizing like. Uh, I'm doing a lot of things, but I got to make sure I spend the time with my family because it's just, it's, I, I just feel like it's really, really essential. I think the second part is um, kind of being able to package up like all the experiences I've had to be ready to be passed forward. And so this is why I'm re- like, I found a company called Scribe Media mm-hmm. who literally helps me as, you know, somebody who can't read or write, write books. And it's a 10, two hour sessions. It's, it, it costs some money to do it, but they, they write, you know, if you read the book, it sounds like I, like me talking because that's what they do is they, they help facilitate 10 to hour sessions. And then they turn, they edit those transcripts into the book. So it's kind of amazing. And so I'm really focused on trying to get uh, the rest of these things out. And then ultimately trying to build um, I'm I like, how do I say I'm really getting, I'm struggling with the fact that most people don't want to spend the time to learn. And that like most people are saying, like I, I, I spoke at a conference the other day and one of those things is like, it went from an hour to 30 minutes to 15 minutes. Like, I don't even know what I can say in 15 minutes. That's why I'm like looking up yeah. the clock. going this. So part of me is how do I actually start to build a way in which to help people have a longer term view of learning some of these skills and these abilities and how do I actually build software and 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 content to enable people to to learn these things after I'm gone? And so that's really kind of where I'm focusing a lot of my efforts right now. Yeah, yeah. That's so, a, and you know, it's a struggle for us as we try to teach innovation within Atrium Health. You know, everyone's got so many meetings and there's so little time to do it, but you you can't. You can only shortcut it so much. You can streamline, but at some point, you got to put in the time to do it. Well, that's that. So this is the this is the thing, Jay, that I'm really like I'm so getting so passionate about is this notion of like people they're willing to spend all this time in meetings, 
But like, I keep trying to ask, like, when does the work get done? Because the work usually doesn't get done in meetings. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, are we actually shortcutting the work? Because everybody's got to know, like, literally, I'm going to meet you tomorrow to tell you what I was supposed to do today, but I didn't get done because I was in meeting. Like, like you start to realize, like, at some point, we got to rethink the work. And so when you look at healthcare, you look at education, it's to the point where I feel like they've become so efficient that they're ineffective. And they have no space to actually change because they've got everything dialed into, oh, everything has to happen in five minutes or 30 minutes or 60 minute windows. Mm -hmm. And that at the same time, the fact is, is like to learn something deeply takes way longer than 60 minutes to, to help somebody with their health takes way longer than one visit. And so how do we actually start to connect the dots between these things? And, and I don't have an answer for it, but I just feel like we're, we're like, I actually think, feel like the pandemic was a good thing for a lot of people that ever, though everybody kind of complained about, it, we all slowed down. We all stripped things back. We all got back to relationships, you know, very solid relationships with people. And you start to realize like at some point, like how do we actually make sure that we, we maintain some of those, those good practices we had during COVID. Yeah. And you know, our boss, Todd Sorry, Dunn. that was a diatribe. No, no, it was great. You, you know, our boss, Todd Dunn, and he is very oh, good yeah. about giving our team space to breathe, work, yes. learn, uh, take the time to unpack interviews, even if it's not the yeah. most efficient way possible and just do deep work. So I think you're, but you're right on the money about. I, uh, I, I, I feel like we we've been focused so much on efficiency that we forgot effectiveness. And and we have almost like, if I look at like, uh, I help a lot of software companies and you look at the sales funnel, it's like marketing's effective or efficient. And, you know, the, the sales is efficient and onboarding, but together they're actually not converting that much. And you're like, okay, you know, uh, who, who would say that 4% conversion rate is good? <laughs> like, I just think about how much rework is in that. And so it's literally taking a step back and seeing the whole and Deming would always say that, you know, there's no, not every system in or a subsystem in a bigger system has to work at its optimum level for the overall system to be a, to be effective. And so part of this is sometimes we have to have some inefficiencies in order to make the overall effective. And so this is where I feel like we're missing it because we feel if we just make every piece efficient, that that's better. And the reality is like when every piece is really efficient, we end up being not as effective. That's a lot of what Clay was talking about before he passed, thinking about it from a macroeconomic perspective. He said, our, yes. our economy is way too focused on, on um, the quarterly earnings report and efficiency yep. innovation and not enough disruptive innovation to create new markets, to create new industries, to create new product services, everything that it's so focused on, on outsourcing and, um, all these other things to, again, yeah, to become more efficient, but not necessarily less effective. That's and, right. uh, and that's, well, that's, it's choking our economy. So, so one of the things that I've realized is there's three resources, um, money, knowledge, and time. And when I, when I don't have money, I take time to study, to learn knowledge so I can go make money. And when I have knowledge and I have money, but I have no time, I spend money to save me time. And so part of it is to realize this, this, this kind of triad of money, knowledge, and time and how we actually play with it to actually help us make progress. And that sometimes money is a resource and sometimes money is, is an output. And we have to actually, that's, that's why causal, you know, causal structures are so important is because it's not always an input and it's not always an output. It's the fact that the context determines what it is. 
And so that's where you have to start to think about it. But most people think about money as the resources, but time is equally as important in some cases more so. And knowledge is just the accumulation of, of, of the, that cause and effect to know what to do with it. And so to me, it's, oh, I, it's like, that's one of the fundamental views. When I look at any problem, I'm like, where's the money? Where's the time? Where's the knowledge? And that helps me frame the system. I think that's a great way for us to conclude. Bob, thank you so much for joining us for the fourth time. Um, congrats on this terrific book. And uh, um, can't wait to have you on for a fifth time at some point. <laughs> congrats to you guys. Like this is a, like I, I'm, a, I'm an avid listener. I really, you know, it's one of those things where I, I'm, I wa- I'm walking quite a bit now. And it's one of those things where I really, really enjoy kind of the, the diversity of your guests and and kind of the the topics and and like uh like healthcare needs all all of this thinking and more and I think Jay to your point is they also need the space and time to try to figure things out I don't feel like anybody has the space and time to think and so truly appreciate you guys doing this and and really helping kind of the healthcare industry and we oh, are you, looking Bob. forward to when Circuit Breaker comes back. Your podcast, oh, yeah. with well, Greg Engel. Uh, Got to you plug your that? podcast I, before we leave. That's right. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, wait, wait, so, this, so I have a podcast, Circuit Breaker, sixty minutes or it's thirty minutes. It's very, very short, and it's designed to literally, like, every time something kind of goes wonky at the office, I just literally go back to the circuit breaker and just blow the whole circuits in the entire office, and then everything resets back to zero. So, like, when the Sonos doesn't work or the Wi-Fi is kind of screwed up, or we just go to the circuit breaker. And so, it's really that mentality of like. How do you take some space and time, 30 minutes, and just think about something a little bit uh, out on the edge and a little bit deeper? And it for- it's forcing you to think, and that's really the, 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 the context for it. Love that. Well, thanks again, Bob. This is Ben Tingey and Jay Gerhardt. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Stay subscribed. You can catch up on our other 113 episodes during our brief interlude. Um, before 2023. And uh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time in 2023. So what are you guys working on? What are the what are the what's what's pushing you guys for twenty? Uh, Ben's Ben's trying to figure out how whether he has to move or add on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially in the car department, we have a minivan, and now all the seats are taken up. Yeah. Um, what do you yeah. do? Um, two car, I, I, it turns out that it's two cars. Like it, like it's going to be. It's very hard to like unless you get an Econoline or and they don't even make that anymore. I don't even know what was it called a. Transit, Ford Transit, maybe. Yeah, Ford Transit. They have a Chevy. Uh, I think it's called a Chevy. Yeah, Metro or something. Or a, yeah. you need like a Sprinter oh. van or something. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The Mercedes <laughs> Sprinter van. There you go.